Welcome to The Pharmacist RN, a podcast made for pharmacists by pharmacists, hosted by John Papasturjo. John is a frontline community pharmacist owner, assistant professor at the School of Pharmacy at both the University of Toronto and University of Waterloo, and an internationally recognized speaker, author, and researcher. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Vallis, a registered health psychologist, a health behavior change consultant, and associate professor in family medicine at Dalhousie University. Dr. Vallis is also the founder of the Behavior Change Institute, which trains healthcare providers in behavior change counseling to develop strategies to improve patient treatment and health outcomes. His research primarily focuses on behavioral change and psychosocial adaptation to chronic diseases. Dr. Vallis was also recently awarded the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal by the Government of Canada on the recommendation of Diabetes Canada. Join John and Dr. Vallis in this episode as they discuss recognizing and addressing behavioral and psychological barriers to treatment adherence and self-management for chronic diseases. In this episode, they discuss ways to engage patients in effective and collaborative discussions that will yield better treatment adherence and outcomes. They also discuss ways in which to use new diabetes technology to maximize patient self-empowerment and improve diabetes management. John and Dr. Vallis also identify ways pharmacists can enhance their practice using these techniques by maximizing their time in collaboration with existing opportunities to generate revenue. Pull up a seat and let's get started. And we're back with another episode of The Pharmacists Are In. I think this is going to be an exciting uh, segment. I'm here with uh, Dr. Michael Vallis. He's a health psychologist and we had a chance to meet, I think it's probably half a year now at an advisory board and I thought I've never met another health psychologist at that time and uh, you were chairing the meeting and I thought what an interesting kind of uh, uh, field of uh, healthcare of medicine and uh, really uh, saw how so many aspects of it could apply to pharmacy and what kind of the objectives of the pharmacists have been in more recent years so welcome to the show thank you and uh, maybe we start by just telling me a little bit about kind of what you do as a health psychologist and how you you know how you impact patient care and kind of what your day-to-day is like yeah great question mm-hmm. I appreciate it I also appreciate the context that you know you haven't met many, many of us <laughs> no, not at all. We're, we're a little bit of rare breeds yeah. um, so as a health psychologist so I'm a, a PhD in psychology which is both a science and a profession and my area has always been around health behavior change And the best way to understand that, I think, John, would be we're sort of trained in the medical sciences, which is about delivering care. The problem is with chronic disease, it's not about us. So it's not what happens inside the consultation that is associated with the outcomes in chronic diseases like diabetes. It's what the patient chooses to do in their home life. And so the amount of time a patient spends with a healthcare provider is really, really minimal. The amount of time that they spend managing all of the demands in their life is maximal. And so it's that translation. So my job really is to help medical providers incorporate the behavioral and psychological aspects of chronic disease to improve the outcomes by increasing adherence and self-management of chronic conditions like diabetes. And see, this is why I find this so fascinating for pharmacists. I mean, we've spent, I mean, our profession has evolved dramatically over the last kind of five to ten years where we've uh, 
focused really on changing, uh, you know, kind of the frontline role from being, you know, one of a dispenser or someone that, you know, gives out medication and pro provides a little bit of education to really a primary healthcare provider where our responsibility is to make sure patients are using the right medication, using it appropriately, they're being adherent, and they're on the right therapy. And uh, one of the areas we struggle with is adherence. And uh, if you look at the Canadian data, over the last 20 years, for any chronic disease, by six months, these patients are at like 50% adherence. They all drop off. And think of all the money we've spent on adherence programs, all the effort. We haven't moved that needle at all. Right. Any, any thoughts uh, yeah. behind that? You know? yeah. yeah, no, thanks. I, I have a number of thoughts on that because I think it really frames up the problem. And by the way, uh, recommendations and education, so what we call teach and tell, doesn't work for improving adherence. And so it's about trying to find the opportunities to shift that conversation. I think a lot of the adherence-based programs require the participation of the individual. And that's kind of where things get to be problematic. The motivated people are the ones that will access those services, but the motivated people are also the adherent people. So it still leaves this population of non-adherence. And there's actually a recent paper published in the Canadian Journal led by one of the endocrinologists here in Toronto, Larry Leiter, and he really looks at the percentage of people in Canada who are not on target. And then what are the main factors why they're not on target? And it all is around the patient's attitudes and the patient-based issues. So I've had quite a bit of experience through Dalhousie with the pharmacy school and in interacting with pharmacists. And I, have a, I, I hope you'd find an interesting perspective that could really add to improving adherence. And that is, how does the medical system operate? And the medical system operates where the medical provider's in charge. So if you're a patient living with a chronic disease, you get an appointment. And let's be honest, the appointment is more convenient for the clinician than it necessarily is for the patient. Then the patient has to find the opportunity to interrupt their life, to go to the clinic and pay for parking, surrender their you know, health card to the registration people, and then sit in a waiting room and then go into the clinician's office. So you kind of see what I'm really framing up here, which is a, an imbalance in power. The doctor's in charge, yeah. so the patient's kind of following along. Um, think about a pharmacist. You don't have an appointment, no. right? So it's not at the clinician's convenience. It's actually at the patient's convenience. So it, it, for me, I, I use the phrase teachable moment. So if you want to think about improving adherence, it's really about us healthcare providers having a conversation with an individual living with chronic conditions in which we say something to them and they go, oh, yeah, it, it teaches something. There's a click. There's a, and we've all seen it as clinicians. We've all seen it where, you know, the patient kind of says, I get it. Now I know why you're asking me to take that medication in that way. And so the opportunity to create teachable moments is kind of related to the context. The second thing I'd like to say, and this is, a, I think, a general statement, when doctors prescribe medications, so I write a prescription, give it to you. Now, as a patient, what do you think I want you to do with that medication? Take it or not take it? Take it, obviously. Of, of course. Yeah. I've written it. I've yeah. given it to you. I've recommended it. So I'm reluctant to tell you about the pills I don't take because yeah. I don't want to let you down. What's really interesting about a pharmacist is they're neutral. Yeah. They're not there as, I know you want me on this drug. 
you're perceived by the public as a dispenser of medication and of evidence, of information. So I think the pharmacy provides a very interesting consultation opportunity for patients because they come when they want on their time and then they have sort of a neutral zone where they may look at some of these behaviors. See, and you know, and th this is what pharmacists are struggling with because historically we were very task driven as well. Mm -hmm. So we knew the public, the public likes us, we're convenient, we're accessible, yeah. we're very trusted and yeah. uh, every year we kind of come out at the top of that kind of trust list. But when you're trying to balance these technical tasks and uh, unfortunately, you know, many pharmacies still are, and pharmacists are tied to that. Um, they struggle with, okay, I have five minutes with this mm -hmm. patient at the, you know, at the end of our, our interaction. What, you know, what should I say? What should I tackle? Uh, you know, do you have any advice? Like if you had five, six minutes with the patient, mm -hmm. um, you, you suspect that maybe there, there's an adherence issue, there's so, yeah. some issue with the, the therapy. You know, how would you approach it? Because mm -hmm. I kind of know what a conventional pharmacist would do, but yep. I don't think it always works. Yep. Yep. So that's a great, great question. Actually, that, that really does describe the kind of research and clinical area that I work in. And what I would say is that as a pharmacist, if you kind of think in the back of your head, what's, what script do I follow? And it kind of looks like this. Ask, listen, summarize, invite. That's it. And you then frame up that conversation by saying to the patient, would it be okay if we took three or four minutes give yourself a little minute buffer. Would it be okay if we took three or four minutes and I asked you some questions about how you're managing with this diabetes or with this disease? Most patients would say, sure. So now you've framed up the time frame. So now you've kind of given the patient the right expectation and then you can feel entitled to monitor time. And you might say to the patient who goes off the rail, um, sorry, I don't, I don't want to interrupt you, but, but you know, we've only got a couple of more minutes. Can, can we get back? Or if the patient opens up an area where you think, wow, this is actually a big, big topic, you might say, it sounds like this is a really big topic. Maybe we could sort of kind of stop now and the next time I'd be happy to continue to talk to you about it. So patients really appreciate that sort of open communication because remember the issues that are associated with non-adherence don't get solved in two minutes. But you can set it up and you can support it. So asking, so can you tell me... Um, uh, a little bit about uh, any challenges that you have with these medications. We know a lot of people struggle with medications. It's actually pretty normal for people to have some difficulties. So can you talk about any difficulties you have? The patient starts to talk. Let's say that they, they don't feel that they, they're not sure they need the medication, right? Or they have some concerns about the, the side effects. And then so you listen, which is really just giving the person 20, 30, 40 seconds to talk. And then you summarize. So when the patient is kind of communicated to you, then you don't jump into a recommendation. What you do is say, okay, thanks. So what I hear you telling me is you're kind of worried that this medication might interfere with some other medication that you're on or it might interfere with your sleep or it might be associated with weight gain. Well, thank you for telling me that. Now, would it be okay if I made some recommendations? And then the invitation is when you say, I either provide education or I provide another recommendation. And so it's a very useful way of very quickly grounding it in collaboration. So we're working together. So I first ask, then I listen. And the art of it is to get comfortable with that um, 
that sort of, we psychologists call it dynamic, but maybe we could just think of it like a dance, right? A movement between two people. And what happens is that the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, or the ninth time the pharmacist has tried that, take three or four minutes, ask, listen, summarize, invite, they will find a rhythm to it. And then it becomes easier. See, that, that's a great point. And what kind of uh, boggles my mind is in many provinces now, pharmacists actually have uh, access to reimbursement for these 5, 10, 20 minutes through the medication review program. And we've really struggled as a profession to, to kind of drive this forward. It's there. Um, you know, what we hear from pharmacists are it's time-consuming, I can't do it, can't fit into my workflow. But there's money available to do right. this, and we know that the patients get value out of it. So I think you touched on a, a number of key points there. It's really frame the discussion so the expectation is there, and I think that's what we don't do. Yep. We drag a senior into the, in the counseling room and say, okay, let's start talking about your meds. And you're, in, you're there, you could be there for an hour. Right. And, you know, you, you can't afford that time right. as a pharmacist. And That's right. some of the data that was published uh, about a year and a half ago said the, the medication reviews that we were doing was on the less complex, younger, simpler patients. Right. And that makes sense to me because if you have a fixed amount of time, pharmacists right. are like, I'm going to bring the easier yep. ones in there, yep. right? Yep. So I could get in and out. And, yep. uh, I mean, I think, uh, I hope our, our listening audience takes some of this back because I think it's a great, great way to at least start that discussion and maybe change the way you practice and generate some revenue. That's what pharmacists are looking for Absolutely. Right I find that to be a really interesting comment because when you look at the research, why aren't healthcare providers really picking up behavior change counseling, which is what we would call this? And there are four really strongly documented reasons. And I find your comment really fascinating because yeah. the four documented reasons are time, training, confidence, and payment. It's fascinating that maybe you've kind of addressed the payment issue, but that's not going to address the other Other issues. And so for me, I'd like to make a comment about the time because um, uh, an implicit um, uh, assumption that we all make, so it's not a trained assumption, but all of us medically oriented healthcare providers have this sort of implicit assumption that if you start something, you finish it. I mean, and it would be obvious, right? A, a surgeon wouldn't open you up and then not close you. So we have a tendency to look at these kinds of procedures as if, okay, if we start it, we have to finish it. So when it comes to these conversations that can be complicated, we don't want to go there because it's like we open it up, we can't close it off. And I'd like to correct that. From a psychological point of view, people are quite capable of starting a conversation, getting a small distance in, stopping it, picking it up next time. These issues that the patients are telling us about are stable issues in their lives. They were there six months ago. They were there six years ago. By the way, they're going to be there six years from now. So they're quite capable if, if uh, the patient says, okay, well, you're interested in the reasons why I'm struggling with this. Well, have you got a long time? Because I've got a lot to say. And you say, well, thank you for telling me that. I've got about four minutes right now, so why don't we get started? You tell me what you can in the four minutes, and then we'll pick it up and fill it in next time. And then you build it. So if we shift that to an explicit assumption, and the way I like to communicate it is it's not finding the time you think you need. It's using the time you have. I'll also make a comment about um, scope of practice, because when you ask providers, why are they reluctant to get into these reasons? Because everybody knows 
you're going to start talking about emotions, you're going to start talking about relations, you're going to start talking about history. And the problem, in my opinion, is the only model, the only way that we healthcare providers understand psychology in medicine is the psychopathology model. Is the patient depressed? Maybe they've got an anxiety disorder. Oh, this person, I'm worried, has a personality disorder. And the words we use describe these legitimate mental health disorders. The average person that you see in your clinic in a day, in your pharmacy in a day, they don't show up that often. The base rate of depression in Canada is around 11 to 12 percent. Base rate of an eating disorder in Canada, 6 percent. How many people living with diabetes struggle with eating? 98 percent. So there's a huge gap there. And so one of the points that I try to emphasize is that with the average person, we're quite capable of addressing the really the surface level. They, these people respond very well to uh, the opportunity to express themselves. Like, uh, I like to sleep in the morning. I find it really difficult uh, to get up and take my medication when I'm supposed to take it. You can say, yeah, think, I can understand that. A lot of people really, really struggle. Can I ask you, um, do you think it's important to, to take those medications in the morning? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, is that something that we can support you doing, knowing that it's, it's difficult? And it's like, absolutely. So patients respond very well to support. We don't have to solve their problems. Ironically, even acknowledging the problem, I know you hate medication, but can we talk about the medications that you're on? And the patient's response is, absolutely. So it's really about helping the provider kind of go into the conversation. And you know, as you kind of describe that, I think about, you know, us as pharmacists, we have that ability to visit these patients or see these patients repeatedly. I mean, they're in our pharmacies more than I think anywhere else. But, you know, I see my regular patients, sometimes they're in there weekly. So Absolutely. it's not like you're going six months between visits. Uh, uh, most of the patients are getting monthly fills. Some, the, mo- the longest duration is going to be three months. So you're going to see them multiple times a year. And in Ontario, the uh, ministry's even put in, uh, into place uh, follow-up medication reviews. So I right. think that's the reason behind it. Hey, so you can't, you know, address every issue in one visit. Let's maybe tackle some of these in the follow-up. Uh, and, and they're not going to be as long. They may not be reimbursed as much as the original, but they're there for a reason. And I think hopefully listening to this, pharmacists will kind of come up with some thoughts on how maybe they change their own practice with a few short questions. I, I did want to get your opinion on kind of something else. Uh, uh, I'm also involved in practice uh, research. That's kind of one of my areas of interest. And we just published a paper uh, last week actually on home visits in ambulatory patients. So these are not homebound patients. These right. are uh, patients that actually visit your pharmacy, but you feel like they have um, some issues. Mm-hmm. And we thought our hypothesis is we, if we went into their homes, we'd probably identify some interesting things, things that they don't tell their pharmacist you can't get from a uh, kind of a review of their history in the store. And the things that we're finding were just mind-boggling. Duplicate therapies, multiple medications, patients taking their neighbor's medications, for example. And when I would ask them, you know, why are you doing that? It's, it's almost like they valued the opinion of their next-door neighbor more than they did of the pharmacist or physician. And it, it just, like, it, it opened my eyes to the issues that many of our chronic patients are, are facing and are hiding in the home. And that's how we described it. I, do you have any insight to that? Or have you seen that in your Oh, practice? I just think, yeah, I, I don't know that I would have any insight, but I would just make the comment that that just uh, really sounds like a wonderful opportunity. You see, you've kind of captured it. 
We've all been trained in acute medicine, which is all about diagnosis and treatment and measuring outcomes, and it's about the expertise, and it's really get the patient to the hospital and then we'll take care of them. But that's not what Canadians die of. They die from chronic conditions, and they then have to manage them on their own in the home. Uh, and so that visit, really what you're doing is that you're, you're sort of flipping it over and you're, you're understanding the disease and its management from the perspective of the individual by actually seeing their environment. Incredibly, incredibly valuable. As a matter of fact, as a psychologist, when we think about treating children, um, you really wouldn't be able to competently treat a child without getting collateral, without getting other sources of information from the individual. And, uh, and to the extent that the child might be really disturbed, you would include a home visit to see that environment. So, and, and the other part to it that I really think is, is actually creative is that it'll force you to be non-judgmental. It's really easy sitting back in our chairs, sitting back behind our desks with our coats on, and hearing people describe things that are non-adherence and thinking, why are you doing that? You shouldn't be doing that. Then we go into their environment and we think, holy cow. Yeah. Right? It was very insightful to me. You really get a sense for, you know, how some of the challenges these patients face at the home. They may not have a lot of support. We assume they do, and they're kind of struggling a lot of times. They don't have the financial resources to get to places. And and, uh, you almost can understand why they're not adherent or they're relying so much on neighbors or friends or whatever in their opinion. But, you know, it did did really change my perspective when dealing with patients in the pharmacy and trying to identify those that may may need a little bit more time. And I yeah. think that was kind of yeah. uh, the point there. I would want to add one comment to this because I think it's important and I'd like to make this clear. When we look at adherence, we look at self-management, we look at behavior change, of course we're asking the individual to do it. But as you're saying, individuals don't live out of the context of their lives. So. Um, one of the things I'd like uh, the, all pharmacists to know is that when patients struggle with change, I sometimes think about it as readiness. How ready is the person to do all that work? And, and it's really hard for people to change. Um, and I, what we know is that having a supportive relationship is incredibly powerful in helping a person stay on track. So let's say all my friends... Um, you know, eat unhealthy, and you've encouraged me to eat healthy, and I buy that. But I go out into my world, and they're all pulling me in the other direction. Even knowing that relationship can be helpful. And so pharmacists, you know, just waving from the behind the counter, you know, on a visit when someone's coming to the pharmacy to buy, let's say, even a grocery product. You know, it's like you're part of that person's relationship pattern. And those supportive relationships, it's not psychotherapy, it's not a, an intimate, vulnerable relationship that you might find like in a psychiatrist's office, but it's very much around working together and supporting that. So those relationships can be actually really helpful. And we know that relationships actually have a curative aspect to it. Yeah, and I mean, I think if there's one, one area where pharmacists do, you know, do very well and it's that, I mean, we see these patients frequently. We know them. We know their families. Uh, they're using our stores not just for the pharmacy, but for their day-to-day shopping and everything else. So we do have that unique kind of connection with many of our, our patients. I'm in Greek town. I know most of the Greek community yes. just because of where I am. Okay. So they're, you know, they're accessing my pharmacy not just to get medications, but you know, some of our elderly, hey, John, I got this letter from the bank. What does it mean? You yep. know? 
Yep. Uh, we've, we almost become a hub for Absolutely. these patients. Uh, Absolutely. Because we're there, we're there every day. And the evidence would say that that's the way you're going to actually promote population health change. Not by the expert in their clinics, but by somehow integrating the health messages into the community. And you're absolutely right. I mean, think about a pharmacist who, you know, would open up a, a pharmacy in a location. They're probably in it for the long run. So they are going to become part of that community. And then that community can actually be really, really um, a good platform for adherence. Because what you then do, so you mentioned being around the Greek town in Toronto. So you then become culturally highly expert. So you would know. And for instance, knowing that something, you know, tragedy last year happened on the Danforth, we would, we would predict that that actually still has some impact. So as a pharmacist in that area, you know, you would know how to sensitively address issues that would be associated with that. And that really improves the ability for us clinicians to make recommendations to patients because the patient receives it as a, an informed and sensitive recommendation. And I think slowly the regulators are, are getting this. We see the scope of practice uh, for pharmacies evolving now to the point that we're able to do more. So it allows us to do more at that frontline level. Vaccination has been a big win for us. Mm-hmm. If you you see where we started about five, six years ago to where we are now, you know, we're going to do probably one and a half million flu shots in Ontario yeah. next year. I mean, uh, we've started to, to do 13 other disease states, and that varies from province to province, but it's been a home run mm-hmm. because we have the relationship, the patients are in there. I know how to like to approach the Greek guys. The Greek guys, you almost got to tell them, "Hey, sit down. You're getting your flu shot." Because mm-hmm. if you ask them, they're all going to say no. Mm-hmm. Hey, do you want your flu shot? No. What do you mean? Sit down. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's I mean that's mm-hmm. the approach I take mm-hmm. with them. But mm-hmm. um, I think the success with vaccination is now kind of rolled out to other things like we're seeing minor ailment prescribing coming, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and hopefully this will have that impact that you're talking about at that kind of community level. Uh, that's where we want to see the profession move, I think. As so I, as you, that's in, I'm glad to hear that because I would sort of just, from my perspective, so I created what's called the Behavior Change Institute. I train healthcare providers in behavior change counseling. And, and what we know is that these are, these are not strategies that are unique to psychologists or psychiatrists or nurses or social workers, that all healthcare providers can really develop the competencies. And, you know, my own area of research is in is in the competency development of these strategies. And I think that for those pharmacists that are interested, there are opportunities to really be able to uh, sink your teeth into this and then really develop those competencies. So it's a great way of of sort of increasing. Remember, a patient has the need for just touch point after touch point after touch point promoting health. Because unfortunately, the way our society operates right now we, the average individual gets exposed to all kinds of non-health messages, right? You know, happy hour, yeah. two for one, supersize, <laughs> yeah, you know. Sure. I, someone today was talking about, you can now get Uber Eats to bring in theater popcorn oh, yeah. so you, when you're watching Netflix. And yeah. it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully this segment will, will, will get pharmacists thinking about this. And hopefully we start seeing yet some of our you know, national, provincial conferences, because I think we're at that inflection point as a profession where, uh, you know, the dispensing tests, they're all going to be centralized. It's not going to be happening in the pharmacy right. anymore. So, you know, we have to really start thinking about where are we going to go as a profession? 
we could get scope, but you can have the scope and not know what to do with it. Right. And I think that's yep. where we are right yep. now. And there's pharmacists that are like way ahead yeah. doing a lot, and there's ones that are just tied to the old world. Yeah. And you can't have that as a no. profession. You know? no. It's an interesting segue because one of the comments I would make, because as those of us that work in this behavioral field, and as you noted at the very beginning, there's not a lot of us. So you can't just rely on you know, the health psychologist to do all the work, because right. we're, we're a pretty rare breed. And this is where we've had some success with technologies. They're building in these sorts of technologies that can track behavior, measure behavior. And I do some research at my university at Dalhousie with the computer science department where we sort of embellish some of this technology to actually guide behavior. So it's a really way of, you know, maybe you don't have to do all the counseling. Maybe you could take two or three minutes and introduce a recommendation. And then maybe there's technology that could support uh, that a, a very popular and well-respected res uh, form of psychotherapy is called cognitive behavior therapy. And there's a group in Saskatchewan who have done a lot of research showing that online cognitive behavior therapy is just as effective as in person. So there may be the ability as well as we go forward to let's say the, the pharmacist uh, raise the issue, make the recommendation, and then perhaps some of the heavy lifting can be even shifted to technologies that allow the patient to do self-management and then check back in with the pharmacist. Yeah, and as you say that, I think about diabetes. This is kind of the, the biggest chronic disease that we deal with at pharmacy level. I mean, it's, uh, they're very important patients to us. We see them frequently. They fill a lot of medications, uh, uh, and they have the potential for a lot of other issues down yeah. the line. And, you know, we see the number of patients with diabetes in Canada is growing very, very quickly. Uh, this is going to be a group that we're going to have to manage more and better, I think, in, yeah. the, in the community pharmacies. And I think of all these cool technologies that are available now, including not only the meters, but the apps associated with the meters. And pharmacists still haven't, like, fully embraced it. It's there. It really, I mean, I've got a pharmacist in my practice that really uses the technology. He, um, he encourages patients to bring in mm -hmm. uh, their meters, or he's got them rostered and is able to look at the results uh, online. And it's changed uh, not only the speed at which she can manage these patients, because when they come in, he's prepared, he's seen the results, they're in and out much, much quicker. He's driving medication reviews uh, for us. But I think it's empowered the patient mm -hmm. to do more as well, because they know, hey, someone's watching them. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah, there's the monitoring. So I find that to be an interesting comment. What I do know is that if you ask individuals in Canada with diabetes, and you ask them, why do they test their blood sugars? Uh, to Almost to a person, they will say, my doctor or my nurse or my pharmacist wants it. And nobody works that hard for other people. And so well, I think that this technology has the potential to help us show the patient how the results of their test is relevant to them. So it can track now such that they can start to see the connection between their behaviors and, let's say, their results. And I use the metaphor, I like to think about a glucometer in exactly the same way as a speedometer. So what I tell a patient is, imagine being on the 401, driving at 135 kilometers an hour for the last two hours. You get off the 401 and you get onto a 50-kilometer uh, school zone. Try slowing down to 50 kilometers without a speedometer. Because when you get to 90, you think you're crawling. Yeah. When you get to 70, you're worried the wheelchairs are going to pass yeah. you. Right? There's no way you could get your car down to 50 without looking at the meter. Yeah. Right? So if we took the judgment 
out of the meter and helped patients just do exactly the same thing. How fast am I going? Wow, I better take the foot off the gas and slow it. Oh, look at that, I did it. And so I, I totally agree with you. I think we can shift the technology, especially around monitoring, and that's a core aspect, as you know, of diabetes management, rather from I'm doing it for my doctor to this is how it helps me. And that's really what empowerment means. Well, it wasn't long ago when I, I we, you know, I remember still giving out, uh, you know, the log books to patients, and you still yeah. see them floating around, and patients like them, they use them, but you get these log books back, and there wouldn't be one high or one low in there, because you're only recording the, the numbers they thought they, they wanted you to Absolutely. see. Absolutely. The minute we switch them to, you know, a smart meter or enhanced glucometer, all of a sudden you're like, hold on. Yeah. You know, we went from being perfect every day to you've got quite right. issues here, right. right? And now again, imagine, right? You got a logbook. You got to do the math, yeah. right? You got to start thinking. Okay, right. how many lows? Yeah. How many highs? How low were the lows? How high were the yeah. highs? Technology can just feed that back to you, especially if they use visual technology, and you know you can feed it back in colors. You know, red is danger, green is great, yellow is caution, right? And and that can provide immediate feedback to the patient. And the most enhanced meters now they guide the patients, give them advice. Yep. You know, that's. Uh, that's valuable, I think, because yeah, most of these tests are yeah. being done at home, you yeah. know, and uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't know, I think we've got it, when I think of diabetes, that's a low-hanging fruit for us, um, you know, there's been a ton of investment made in these, these technologies, and pharmacists are like slow to adopt it, I mean, we've generally been pretty slow uh, with health technology, I find, but this is an area where I think it could dramatically increase uh, the number of patients that you could see in a day if you really, you know, yeah. uh, uh, in, in, incorporate it to your practice. I made a comment earlier about, you know, the pharmacy potentially being able to access more of the population. And when you say diabetes, and I sit back and I think, okay, so what do we know about diabetes in Canada, type 2 diabetes? Half of the people don't know they have it. And overall, only 20% of people with diabetes are seen in diabetes education centers. So where are they being treated? And are they being treated? And if you think about what you're describing, if the pharmacy becomes a, uh, an environment for non-judgmental screening and then non-judgmental support for overcoming the barriers to adherence, I think the, the kind of a rising tide would float a lot of boats. Yeah. The, the one thing I wanted to make sure I asked you today, it was kind of on my list, was uh, one of the challenges I face in my practice, and now we have some data, and I think, good national data to support this is we have these patients uh, with type 2 diabetes that are used to taking oral medications and we're just so reactive we wait till their A1C gets worse throw another you know pill at them they get to uh, four pills they're like John I don't want the needle that's what they say just give me another pill I'll take five I'll take ten when we know the best possible thing we can do for these patients is get them on insulin earlier and be real yeah. proactive and I think there's reasons behind why, you know, even as healthcare providers, we kind of procrastinate uh, moving to insulin. But if you had any advice, like, how do you, you know, sell the idea? And I, I, I'm challenged because I've got a lot of seniors with, hey, you know, if we could get you on insulin, it's not that bad. You could dramatically improve your outcomes down the line. Yeah, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. So it reflects a lot of complex issue. By the way, one of the things that I'd like the pharmacist to just be comfortable with is is a psychological condition. So, so the psychology of diabetes is becoming really well understood, um, probably the most understood of the chronic conditions. And there are three psychological issues associated with diabetes that are specific to diabetes, and they are diabetes distress, 
fear of hypoglycemia for those on insulin, but then this is psychological insulin resistance. And we see that there's both attitudes in the provider, called clinician inertia, and attitudes in the patient. For me, I would just make the following general comments. First of all, whenever you're, uh, you're with a patient with type 2 diabetes, um, remind the person it's a progressive disease. That insulin resistance inevitably leads to insulin insufficiency. This is what we know. If you look at the natural course of diabetes, there's a, a 10% loss of beta cell every year after diagnosis. So beta cell dis- destruction occurs. And so it, it really, we could educate patients at diagnosis. Insulin, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And then put insulin in a positive frame. You know, it's like, okay, you're on oral medication, but you know what, we've got something that can really help you when you need it. So, so if you get things get out of control, you really wanna get your sugars under control, there's this product we have. Um, that can be, so put a positive frame on insulin because, you know, part of psychological insulin resistance is that the patient's gotten socialized into thinking that they're failing. Yeah. You know, and one and then two and then three, I'm, I must be really bad. And they don't want to feel bad. And so they tend to kind of resist it. Um, and so I think it's important that we sort of put that positive frame in. Some of my endocrinology colleagues describe insulin as hormone replacement therapy, which I find really interesting. Yeah. And they, they, what they do is a lot of people think, oh, medic- drugs, oh, no, no, those are foreign chemicals created in a lab. I'm not so sure I want those things. Whereas what we're trying to do is really top up right, what's there. So there is that sort of argument as well yeah. in terms of trying to really you know, educate uh, the person. But for me, it's, a, it's trying to let that person know that this is expected, this is normal. And I can share with you a a, a funny experience that happens in every diabetes education center in the country. And that is that type 2 patient who resists insulin, resists insulin, resists insulin, resists insulin, eventually goes on it. Next appointment, they come in angry at you because you didn't put them on it yeah, sooner. Yeah. Because they saw just how effective That's it was. Right. So my final comment around insulin is tell some stories. Yeah. Tell some story, no, anonymous stories, yeah, sure. but, you know, <laughs> tell your patients, you know what, I, I've heard that a lot, and can I just share it with you, you know, there's... You know, I heard this, well, this friend of mine has a person, and here's what they said, and do you know why yeah. they would say that? And, and sort of give the person the chance to express their attitudes. And a lot of times, once a person has expressed the resistance, and you don't, you don't resist it, so that's the ask, listen, summarize, invite piece, and then you might end up saying, well, would you be open to talking about that more? Because just so you know, my recommendation at this point but it's up to you, would be to start insulin and then leave it. You'd be surprised at a, a, a substantial minority of people would even come back at a next visit and say, you know what, John, I've been thinking about it and I'm kind of coming around to your side. And so that point means that give people time to come to their own decisions. We sometimes think that we have a conversation and it's like, okay, what's your final decision? And a lot of people really feel like, no, I need to think about it on my own or I want to talk to somebody and then you start shaking the trees, right? What's the degree of separation from type 2 diabetes in this country? One, right? You're going to find type 2 diabetes in every clinic, every cafeteria, every workplace. And then you ask, do you know anybody on insulin? And you'll start finding that lots of people are saying, oh, yeah, it's, it's not as big of a deal. Oh, those are great, some great points. So I think we, we're coming to the end of our time. I just wanted to kind of leave you kind of with the last message. If you had kind of a group of pharmacists... Uh, uh, you know, listening, and you're, they're very, they're excited about 
changing the way they they practice? What would be your like one or two kind of points you'd want to leave them with, uh, kind of thinking about, hey, I'm going to take this home and maybe I'll be able to yeah. implement it. Yeah. For me as a psychologist, I think it's quite simple. The strongest predictor of success is not giving up. So if that's their yeah. goal, hang in there. Try it once. Try it. There's a lot of psychological techniques that are very, very effective. Fear management, uh, relaxation, mindfulness meditation, physical activity, assertive communication, cognitive restructuring activities. There's many, many, uh, journaling. I could show you just a whole, whole list, but they only work after you've done it 35 times. If you practice mindfulness meditation three times, it's not going to help you. And so the message really is, is hang in there because, you know, as a psychologist and a behavioral person, I can sort of give you some structure, give you some strategies, but you have to figure it out in your own practice. So how does this show up in Greektown? How do you do these? And you'll have to figure that out. And so what I would like to say is if you don't get up, give up, then and this is what I love about my work, which is presenting what are the evidence-based strategies and then letting the person creatively integrate those into their own style. Men talk differently than women. Yeah. Older pharmacists might talk differently than younger pharmacists, rural, urban, etc. And it's really about how each of us are able to practice the, the principles of self-management support. That's great, I think. That's a great way to, I think, end and a great message to end with. So want to th- thank you, Dr. Michael Vallis, for coming in uh, today. Hopefully we'll get you in on a future segment. There's a lot that we can talk all day about this <laughs> stuff, but uh, uh, I'm sure we'll get a chance to run into each other in the near future. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so in. much for inviting me. It's awesome. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by LifeScan, a world leader in blood glucose monitoring manufacturing. To learn more about LifeScan and their products, visit www.lifescan.com.